podcast everyone welcome to the charbook podcast this is your host kushal mehra all right my guest today is dr salvatore babunis <laughs> and the best part is that he's is so famous that i don't have to introduce him that's the best part about talking to salvatore <laughs> salvatore welcome to the podcast well thanks i suspect i'm famous for another week or two and then come uh, january everyone will have to introduce me again <laughs> but 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 salvatore so so maybe for for those two people who don't know about you maybe maybe we can start here uh, tell tell everybody a little bit about yourself uh well uh my name is salvatore bonus i am a comparative sociologist at the university of sydney my own academic work is on a uh, quantitative macro comparative sociology so methods quantitative methods statistical methods for studying country level comparisons or comparing countries around the world uh i recently authored a paper that has made me famous or notorious now uh, depending how you want to see it in india the paper was published in august uh, actually in celebration of 75 years of indian independence it was published in august in quadrant magazine a magazine here in australia called uh, who are the barbarians at the gate <laughs> and it was a an article uh, uh, let me just be frank um exposing the the problems with the international valuations of indian democracy and when i say problems i think maybe read uh, lies <laughs> but uh, that has uh, you know made me now um, a public figure in india and there've I've I've been in the very strange situation of seeing articles written about me as opposed to just articles written by me and that is very odd I mean I've written more than 500 short articles and op-eds uh for you know magazines newspapers for foreign affairs magazine for foreign policy magazine for the national interest for quadrant here in Australia the Australian newspaper the Sydney Morning Herald and no one ever thought to write about me before so um Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, Indian journey the last uh, few weeks and I've been really enjoying all the outpouring of uh, support and encouragement I've received. All right, so let's start here Salvatore. Maybe we can the focus of your essay or your piece that you had written was mm-hmm. different indices that or indexes, however however we want to pronounce it, that cover India. and in, in multiple facets now can you maybe i always like to f- function at the baseline where i assume people don't know that these things are happening so what exactly do these indexes or rating indices do basically what how do they work what 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 do they intend to do and and then maybe you can also explain to my viewers and listeners what are the methodology what is the methodology that they use Sure so this would be a long answer so you know sit down relax uh, if, you know Kushal if you have some extra work to do on the side now's the time to do it while i kind of run through the indices so there are three major indices that are used by academics and professionals to rate democracies around the world these are the economist intelligence units uh democracy index the freedom house freedom in the world rankings and the varieties of democracy institute uh democracy rankings now These three rankings or indices are all distinct and separate. They have their own methods, they have their own independent rankings. All the other indices you see out there. You know, I was recently in a in a little debate with Shekhar Gupta about the Human Freedom Index from Cato Institute. He didn't seem to realize that that's just based on data repackaged 
from the Rise of Democracy Institute rankings, right? So all the other indices that you'll see out there are just these indices put together in indices of indices. So it's these big three that we really have to be concerned with. The first, the Economist Intelligence Unit Index is produced by the, as you would guess, the Economist Magazine and their consulting arm, the Economist Intelligence Unit. It is the least well-documented of the indices, just like The Economist magazine does not author articles. It just has articles with corporate authorship. It doesn't say who wrote them. Um, we don't know who's behind the Democracy Index published by The Economist Intelligence Unit. They apparently reach out to experts. They talk to analysts. You know, they, they're very vague about it on the website. We don't have any numbers on it. We don't know how many people they survey. We do know that they ask experts in the field. So they do say that we consult with experts and come to a, you know, a, a conclusion. Okay, the Economist Intelligence Unit has the least bad rankings for India. And unfortunately, I don't have these prepped uh, handy with the numbers, but uh, you know, India ranks somewhere, I think, uh, around 40 in the world on the Economist Intelligence Unit rankings. The second ranking, Freedom House, Freedom in the World, used to be the academic standard ranking. So if you go back to academic literature from you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, even maybe 10 years ago, it all used the Freedom House, Freedom in the World Index as a stand-in for democracy. And the reason is that it was the only comprehensive index available. The Economist for a long time was not that comprehensive. It's a mysterious methodology. Freedom House, Freedom in the World had a very clear methodology. It has, and, and again, I didn't prep the numbers, but it has something like 120 in-house experts and another 40 or so um, consulting experts who, who, I'm sorry, 120 or so analysts who are part of their panel. They're not in-house, they don't work for Freedom House. And then a further 40 or 50 who uh, are consulted, but who are not on the panel. Okay. So together, these 160, 170 experts are responsible for ranking all you know, 200-ish countries in the world. Uh, and they do so on a very detailed set of metrics. So Freedom House has you know, a very detailed uh, rubric for marking countries. And their, their working groups sit down and rank each country. How do we think, you know, how do we think press freedom is in India? How do we think uh, academic freedom is in India? How do we think elections are in India? And then they go on to Indonesia. How do we think elections are in Indonesia? How do we think, you, you know, journalists, free, uh, freedom of press is in, in Indonesia? How do we think? And on each of these metrics, they create a score. And then all those scores get amalgamated into an overall country score. India does less well on their ranking. I think it's around number 80. Again, I'm sorry I didn't prep the numbers. I, I you know, wasn't ready for I gave the set speech last night, and I, I don't have the numbers handy at, at the moment. Uh, the third major index, and the one that's become the most important because it's become the global standard, is the Varieties of Democracy Institute, or VDEM, ranking. VDEM is published by an institute, essentially by the Department of Political Science at Jotunberg University in Sweden. The director is an eminent Africanist uh, who studies African democracy. Uh, and VDEM has become the global standard for several reasons. First, it is academic. It's done by a university. It's funded primarily by the European Research Council uh, under academic grants versus Freedom House is funded mainly by the State Department. The Economist is a consulting firm. So because VDEM is actually, you know, supposedly a dispassionate, unbiased research organization 
producing rankings. It has that built-in prestige. And VDAM is actually used, it's incorporated into the most other rankings. I already mentioned it's incorporated into the Cato Institute's ranking, but it's also incorporated, for example, into USAID governance measures. It's incorporated into the World Bank's governance measures. It just pops up everywhere as if you need a democracy score or democracy sub-index to include in your, your own index, you pull them from VDEM. The data are very comprehensive. They're published in a very machine-friendly but human-unfriendly format. So many, it's very difficult if you're not an academic to download the VDEM data and work with it, but it's meant to be used by professional programmers, not to be used by uh, you know, for public relations purposes. Now, VDEM has the most elaborate methodology. They survey uh, experts in countries. So 85% of their expert panel consists of academics. The rest of the 15% it consists of editors, human rights activists, you know, other, other intellectuals. And they try to have at least two thirds of the panel studying any one country being people in that country. And they've set a minimum threshold. I believe the minimum threshold is five people per country uh, ranking each country. And again, primarily people located in the country as opposed to being outside experts. So when I made that statement that you foregrounded in the uh, teaser for this, uh, for this episode saying, you know, India's intellectuals are anti-India, you know, that would primarily, uh, appertain to the VDEM rankings, which are very clearly emphatically and in a well-documented way, based on the views of Indian intellectuals. Now, that is the ranking system on which India fares the worst. It's down, and, and again, I, I'm sorry I didn't prep the figures. I have them all, I just don't have them written down on my notepad. Uh, you know, somewhere, India's somewhere around 140. And I'm sure your viewers are already putting in the YouTube chat <laughs> exactly what the numbers are. So, you know, we could go onto Google and find them, but, you know, it's down around, I think it's 138 on VDEM for uh, India. Now, the remarkable thing about the VDEM rankings is that India today is placed on a par for democracy. And specifically, VDEM has four different democracy scores. The primary one is, and I stress this, electoral democracy. They have other scores for participatory democracy, other things, but the, the, the one score that, the headline VDEM score is the score for electoral democracy. India's score in electoral democracy is only a sliver above that of Myanmar. <laughs> so, and, and I'm not talking pre-coup Myanmar. I'm talking today's Myanmar, uh, 2022 Myanmar run by a military junta. And VDEM is placing India just two steps above Myanmar out of 100, anyway, out of the nearly 200 countries they rank. So just above Myanmar. Uh, VDEM also does historical rankings where its panel has gone back and evaluated rankings through history. And again, India today is on the same level same score as it was in 1975-76 uh, during the emergency. Uh, so it's hard to take VDEM credibly, but as I keep stressing to people, you know, VDEM is not a bunch of Swedish people who send their experts out on fact-finding missions to India. VDEM surveys primarily Indian academics to get their appraisal of Indian democracy, and then it collates those figures, and also not only Indians, but also people abroad who study India, and puts them together into a score that ultimately 
you know, ends up in a ranking. Now we can also talk about the press freedom index, you know, other indices out there, but you know, the, these big three are the big three democracy indexes and worryingly for India, VDEM really, and I have to stress this, has become the global, it's certainly become the global academic standard. So if you're doing an academic study of democracy today, you use VDEM. You, you don't use Freedom House, that's kind of old hat. And you, you certainly don't use the Economist Intelligence Unit, which isn't well documented. So VDEM has become the standard academic tool, and it's becoming also the standard civil society tool. So for example, if a development bank is considering giving a loan, and they have minimum governance standards in that loan, and India does not meet the minimum governance standards as recorded in the VDEM survey, you know, then India may not be eligible for that loan because VDEM says India does not meet the minimum governance standards. Um, so this is probably on the horizon of becoming a, a major practical problem for India. So I did cover, I actually did a deep dive on the World Press Freedom Index, which was the reporters without borders yeah, report, rsf uh, yeah thing. so what was fascinating and and i'm sharing my experience i actually went through all the questions they asked it it, it was a pain like there were so many questions very detailed there. yeah yeah and and i went through them all but these are my observations now i'm sharing my observations with you because i've not gone through the vdem one and i would love to know if i'm wrong on reporters without borders too and uh, uh, why the questions were vague to begin with. They were very vague. Also, uh, if I was to use this uh, acronym, the design of the questions um, were basically, which is something that I have um, uh, kind of noticed every time, in, and in a lot of sociology and psychology research too, they were designed from a very weird nation perspective. Weird for the ones who don't know is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So when when these surveys are designed, is there a probability that the questions itself could be leading to a certain direction, Salvatore, or am I am I wrong in this assumption? Well, you're right, but I think you put too much weight on it. So I'll give you an example from VDEM. In VDEM's participatory democracy subscore, in, in that index, uh, there is an item for universal versus targeted social policy. VDEM considers that universal social policies that, that cover the entire population, for example, universal health care, as opposed to only having targeted government health care for the poor, that universal social policies are more democratic somehow. Now, that's their judgment. And in fact, in the social policy world, there's a lot of support for universal policies under the theory that if a policy is universal, there's no stigmatization attached to accepting it. Whereas if a policy is targeted for the poor, it labels people as poor and stigmatizes them if they accept the aid. Okay, so that's a theory in social science. It's a reasonable theory. Now, it may, not be, it may be right or wrong, but it's reasonable. Okay, apply that to India. Uh, so India has anti-poverty programs. Those anti-poverty programs are, of course, targeted at helping the poorest people in Indian society. In a resource-constrained environment like India's, it would be egregiously bad policy to give the same benefits to the middle class and to rich Indians, you know, to waste those benefits when resources are scarce and those benefits really should go to those most in need. In Sweden, yeah, resources are plentiful. Give the benefit to everybody. What does it matter? Um, in the resource-constrained environment, you know, good social policy would be exactly the opposite of what will get you a high score 
on the VDEM index. Okay, so these things, these these assumptions are embedded into the rankings. You're right. That said, and, and there's a big that said uh, about it. Um, India's problem on these rankings is not fundamentally a Western bias. A after all, you know, India's ranking on VDEM and on the other rankings has tumbled dramatically in the last eight years. That has nothing to do with Western biases increasing over the last eight years. I mean, the rankings were very good. I mean, Indian democracy, I, I forget which index placed it on a par with Belgium just eight years ago. So, uh, you know, these pro these Western biases, they're there. You're absolutely right. But they're not really determinative. They're, they're not what's causing this problem with the misranking of India. Instead, the problem is that on that Reporter Sans Frontiers World Press Freedom Index questionnaire, the Indian journalists who answer it are rating India very low. Now, the Hong Kong journalists who answer it are rating Hong Kong slightly better than Indian journalists rate India. <laughs> and the result is that on the World Press Freedom Index, Hong Kong, where the Apple Daily has been shut down by the government, where the editors and publishers have been arbitrarily arrested, where the owner of Apple Daily was abducted and taken to mainland China for a secret trial, uh, you know, where the presses of the Apple Daily were, were smashed up by government goons, uh, where you can't say anything against the government because of the security law, where RSF itself gave Jimmy Lai, the publisher of the, of the Apple Daily, its Press Freedom Award <laughs> for resisting Chinese oppression. Uh, Hong Kong is rated above India <laughs> on the World Press Freedom Index. Now, yeah, we can all laugh at that. It's ridiculous. But that has nothing to do with Western, bi you know, Western biases, you know, anti-South biases, et cetera, et cetera. So the things you're talking about, I don't want to say they're not there. You're absolutely right. But 90 or 95 percent of India's low ranking is not due to those biases. It's due to the journalists in India who seem to be actually convinced that they are more oppressed than their colleagues in Hong Kong. Okay, so let's let's get to this now. So what you're basically saying is that the ratings of these indices, the questionnaire might be slightly different, but it's a sampling error. Is is that what I'm getting? It's a because no, 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 every, no, no. every no, 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 no. I'm sorry to cut you off. I I, I want to be absolutely clear here, and I've said this repeatedly the last two weeks when people have been asking me about this. The rankings, and especially the VDEM rankings and the Reporters Sans Frontiers rankings, the two survey-based rankings, the rankings accurately reflect, accurately reflect the views of Indian intellectuals about their own country. They accurately reflect the views of Indian intellectuals as a class, not every Indian intellectual, but they reflect the views of Indian intellectuals about their own country. And I've had lots of questions Yes, Palpatine, but what is an intellectual? Isn't Kushal an intellectual? Now, Kushal, no disrespect intended. Um, you're not a professional intellectual. You're a podcaster. You're a questioner. You're a, you know, you're a citizen journalist, maybe. But when I say intellectual, I mean people who are paid by establishment organizations to have the job of thinking about society. University professors, heads of major think tanks. You know, the the country head of Amnesty International. Uh, the senior editors of major newspapers, the authors who are headlined at writers' festivals. I mean, forgive my saying, I don't mean to be arrogant uh, about this because I don't view intellectual as a compliment. 
I'm an intellectual, <laughs> right? I'm paid by a university to teach students and do research, and I am paid by media organizations to write columns for them. I am a fully certified, pull out the membership card, uh, you know, member of the intellectual class. People like me in India and in the West, but people like me in India are giving India these negative rankings. Not VDEM, not Freedom House, not Reporters Sans Frontiers. It's the Indians answering this. And even for The Economist and Freedom House, which are not using in-country surveys, where are they getting their information about India? They're getting it from academic colleagues in India, from think tank reports about India, from Human Rights Watch reports on India, from Indian NGOs that report that write reports on India. That is, even those other organizations that are not directly based on surveys of intellectuals, when they provide evidence to support their rankings, the evidence they're provided is taken by the outputs of these very people. So it's secondhand views of intellectuals instead of firsthand, but it's still the views of intellectuals. The rankings accurately reflect the views of Indian intellectuals. That's the challenge for us to unpack tonight. It's not the biases in the rankings, it's the biases in the intellectuals that are causing these low scores. Now, okay, let me let me try to maybe push back a little bit over here. All right. So how do they decide who they reach out to? Like, um, uh, let me lay it out and explain it yeah. to you. It's impossible. Like I've been now in, I've been involved in Indian socio-political discourse now for a good decade. I have yeah. known people. I know most of them, like Shekhar's come on my podcast. Many others have come on my podcast. Yeah. I, I know these people. I talk to them. But there is a huge swath of Indian intellectuals, as you have defined it, that actually do have a different view of India. Yeah. So how is it not a sampling error in that case? Because I could actually, on the top of my head, think of many intellectuals in these institutions that do have it. So at the end of the day, it is somewhere down the line there. I'm not saying it's the only, I'm not saying it's the only variable. Like I did not mean to say that the weird acronym that I use was the only variable, but all these variables do come into play where at the end of the day, um, I don't know how to put it, but the people who design these reports are human beings. They're they not are. automatons. They're human beings who interact with other human beings across the world. And what from what I have understood is that people hang out with their own tribe. Human beings yes, are tribal at the end of the day. They only hang out with their own tribe. Beyond a right. point, nobody hangs out with people who give them cognitive dissonance. Now, if you're sure. in, so they end up knowing only a certain kind of people. Because if I was to map the views of intellectuals in India and I put them, remove them, and I put them in Europe they would actually have the same kind of view even in that situation. So don't you think it adds to the biases even more and does create a sampling error in that scenario? Look, so I don't mean to, to kind of be too much of a statistician on you. There, there, there are two kinds of error. There's, there, there's error that is random and there's error that's systematic. Okay, so random error, when you say sampling error, that implies random error that, well, just depends who happened to get in the sample. And if there's sampling error, then we would expect to see the rankings like just shift up and down, you know, erratically because every year the sample is different and there are different people in it. Now, we don't know how they sample. We don't know who's in the sample. We don't know how many people they've sampled for India. I suspect because India is a large country, they probably have sampled more people for India 
than say for Nepal. And they probably have a larger panel for India, but I can't know. They don't publish these details about their methodology. I'm only guessing. Okay, but let's say they have 10 people for India. That's probably a, a maximum number of people in the sample for India. When I say they're surveying top Indian intellectuals, if I were to ask who are they sampling, uh, I would guess almost certainly the head of some major activist organization, someone like the head of Amnesty International in India, probably the head of the Indian Sociological Association, the chair of the Indian Sociological or president of the Indian Sociological Association, president of the Indian Political Science Association, the dean of political science at JNU, uh, two or three other senior academics who may hold administrative positions or leadership positions in major academic bodies. Okay. Now, I personally have heard two past presidents of the Indian Sociological Association speak on Indian democracy in the last 10 years. And both of them have told us, international audiences, that India was a fascist dictatorship under Narendra Modi. Now, I don't have to work so hard to put two and two together and say that if the president of the Indian Sociological Association thinks India is a fascist dictatorship, and if the VDEM is surveying top Indian academics for its survey, that, yeah, you know, <laughs> like this is where they're getting the knowledge from. Now, I can't prove that to you. I, I mean, we'd have to somehow get VDEM to release its college of experts. And then you could say, these are the 10 people to blame. Um, but ultimately, you know, if you look at the, you know, if you look at which writers in India, if you were to compile a list, something you could do easily, not that I want to have to do it, but you could do easily. If you published, if you were to compile a list of the last eight years, all of the presidents and vice presidents of the Indian Sociological and Political Science Associations, and all of the winners of whatever the top literary prize in India is, thinking, you know, literary intellectuals as well. And put those people on a big list of, you know, now you're talking about, you know, 30 people who are candidates for this. Um, I'm willing to bet you that if you were to search their names and Modi, uh, you could very easily find that, you know, 90% of them are anti-Modi. The same way if I did the same exercise in the United States, I'm absolutely confident that if you took those 30 people and the word Trump, <laughs> you would find that, you know, 95% of them are anti-Trump. I mean, I, no, so I don't have the data for India, but be, from what I know about the United States, we do have data because we have a database, public database of, of political donations made by academics. And it's over 95% of American academics who contribute to the Democratic Party versus Republican Party. Well, you know, <laughs> it doesn't take a, a, it doesn't take a degree in statistics to realize that any survey done of academic views of American politics is going to find out that yeah, Trump's a fascist and the Democrats are good people, uh, right? So, so what I'm saying about Indian intellectuals, you're right to push back at me on me. Can I substantiate it? No, I can't substantiate it, but I also can't substantiate lots of things that I know are true. Uh, you know, my building is made of reinforced concrete. How do I know? Because like I'm standing on it and it would collapse if it weren't. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> you know, but um, I'm pretty sure I'm right. Uh, you know, look, it's just a common sense sort of thing. And look, we could do the thought exercise of trying the exercise for ourselves. And I would ask your viewers to do that exercise for themselves. Do they think that the last five presidents of the Indian Political Science Association in general are anti-Modi? 
and if they do, then okay, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, sure, you can yeah. find a professor at IIT, uh, you know, Madras, who is a Modi supporter, uh, probably in electrical engineering, you know, but um, you know, yeah. in, in, Indian social scientists are are as a class vehemently anti BJP. And I believe they have, just like American social scientists have allowed their anti-Trump views to affect their view of American democracy as such, I believe Indian intellectuals have allowed their anti-Modi views to, inf to infect their, their views of Indian democracy as such. No, uh, I'll tell you why I, I, I agree with your claims is because I remember Jonathan Haidt talking about the lack of viewpoint diversity inside American academia. Yeah. Jonathan Haidt is a famous uh, American yeah. intellectual. Psychologist and, at NYU. Yeah. 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 And uh, I remember Jonathan Haidt sharing studies in his book where inside, again, sociology departments or basically with, with so outside of economics, where it's a 50-50 yeah. Republican-Democrat divide, if you get into any department, there are 90 to 95% people. What, what was amazing was even philosophy departments were... Yeah completely oh, yeah. uh, democratic that uh, and and uh, in that case when these are the people that are going to be approached about america so the ratings about america also are going to be shown in a certain way when they yeah. are under donald trump so i'm not surprised that it's happening yeah. in india because so what, the problem is that they they don't go to let's say the business departments they only go to the social science departments and social science departments by default have a particular leaning but we are the ones who study democracy. People in business schools do not study democracy. They study accounting or finance. And if you do a finance survey, you're not going to ask me. And in the same way, if you're doing a democracy survey, you're not going to ask a finance professor. And that's entirely appropriate, right? I mean, look, I I've heard people say, you know, India should have its own surveys of democracy. And I said, okay, who are you going to survey? Oh, we're, we're going to survey neutral people. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, how are you going to know they're neutral? You know, like, like if you're going to survey academic social scientists who are experts on democracy, just like I have a whole shelf of, I'm going to point to it. I have a whole shelf of books about democracy in decline, the death of democracy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, all of those books are written by senior academics who study democracy. I mean, in my own school at the University of Sydney, I have two senior colleagues who've written books or one who's written a book, one who's writing a book about how terrible Indian democracy is. <laughs> so, you know, um, they're the people who are going to be in your surveys of Indian democracy. All right. They're writing so, books on yeah. it. They are the experts. And, and I want to stress, they are the establishment experts. They're biased. They're wrong. They've allowed their biases to infect their social science. But nonetheless, they are the credentialed experts. And any survey based on credentialed expertise is going to find the same result. All right. So then, then my next question to you would be, how do we get out of this conundrum then? You don't get out of the conundrum. Uh, you think about uh, how to keep people honest. So for example, in my paper, I have cited about a dozen ways. I mean, I went through every bit of actual evidence offered in support of claims of deteriorating democracy in India. And I think I almost to every almost everyone i mean the only bit of evidence of all the evidence that they presented 
to show a decline of Indian democracy in the last uh, eight years. The, the only bit of evidence that could be considered credible, depending on your point of view, is the idea that uh, official political rhetoric has been less uh, less accommodating of Muslim of the Muslim minority in India than it was under the previous government. Now, I don't know how true that is. I'll leave that for Indians to judge, but that certainly is a credible allegation uh, that anti-Muslim sentiment has been used politically to gain votes. Now, we can argue over that. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to argue over it. I'm happy to. I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying it's credible. You know, I think a credible case can be made that the BJP has mobilized anti-Muslim sentiment to win votes. Okay, one credible claim. The other claims were all absolutely false. I mean, so for example, one of them, one of the claims was that Indian democracy has deteriorated because of the low number of Muslims in the Lok Sabha. Only five percent of Lok Sabha versus fourteen percent of the population. All right, that that sounds bad. But wait a minute. Muslim representation in the Lok Sabha increased <laughs> between 2014 uh, and 27 and 2019 from 22 members to 27 members. So even if it was bad, I mean, and we can debate whether having Muslim representatives actually means it's not democratic, et cetera, et cetera. But even if the situation was bad and India should get a low ranking for it, that low ranking should be improving <laughs> quite dramatically. I mean, an improvement from 22 to 27, that's a you know, a, a, a what, a, a 22% improvement, something like that. I mean, so that should be cause for celebration. How could it be cause for showing a decline in Indian democracy? Uh, so it was that kind of mendacity that I found through all the claims, one after another, after another, they were all simply mendacious. They were misrepresenting the situation. They were absolutely false in some cases. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, so what I would suggest is what Indians should do is do this kind of detailed research, rebutting claims. So the government of India, instead of saying, oh, this ranking is low, it's Western biased. It's unfair. It, you know, it, how could they do this when, I mean, I've heard complaints that how could they do this when uh, Sweden technically has a state religion and India is technically secular? And it's like, well, yeah, we all know that Swedish Lutheranism, while it is technically a state religion, is not enforced as such, and there's no practical, you know, we're, you know, no one's going to take that narrative seriously, right? What that what should be done is pointing out actual errors in the ranking, creating fact sheets so that people can easily access the fact sheet, making resources available. Okay, so if, uh, so for example, one of the examples I use in, in the paper uh, India has been criticized, Indian democracy has been criticized for having the highest number of journalists being killed in any country outside China. Oh, that's terrible. But India has more of everything than any country outside China. There are more people with black hair. There are more people with beards than any country. There are more people with liver complaints than any country outside China. What's the rate per billion? Well, in India, 3.5 journalists killed per billion people. Rest of world, 6.3. India, in fact, is a relatively safe country in which to be a journalist. Well, if that data were produced by the government, instead of being produced by an NGO, the NGO producing the data tries to, to depict the data in as negative a light as possible. Headline, more journalists killed in India than in any other country. Okay, and that gets picked up and that gets amplified and that enters into the evidence for the rankings. Well, what if instead government of India were publishing the data, it had number of journalists killed in India, 
it had a time trend. What if the government worked very hard to ensure the safety of journalists, to ensure that that trend was going down over time? Then, okay, instead of having to rely on a highly political NGO for this kind of data, yeah, we could go to an official government site and get the real data without the political spin. Now, that won't fix the rankings, right? The, 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 the biases in the rankings are baked in. But it does offer a credible counter-narrative to the rankings. And I think that's the best India can do, is offer a credible, fact-based counter-narrative. Can I give you one more example? I, I don't want to... Sure, you know, sure, sure. No, 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 please, please do, um, please do. Status of Kashmir. You can find endlessly repeated in the media, Indian Kashmir is the most occupied territory on earth. Now, that comes out of an activist report, and it's based on data about number of soldiers stationed in various territories. Now, India being a democracy actually reports the number of soldiers stationed in Kashmir, and we all know that soldiers stationed in Kashmir are there because the line of control with Pakistan is a military conflict zone, and the line of actual control with China is a military conflict zone. Um, and so there are a lot of soldiers in Kashmir. How many soldiers are in Chinese-occupied Kashmir? Don't know. How many soldiers are in Pakistan-occupied Kashmir? Don't know, <laughs> right? So uh, you get this ridiculous statistic. Now, uh, the statistic is ridiculous, but it's not false. I mean, it's not true, <laughs> you know, but it's not false. Well, you know, could we have some very clear government reporting on soldiers in Kashmir, their duties in Kashmir, how many are actually in the Kashmir Valley as opposed to on the frontier? How many of those are involved in civil law enforcement in Kashmir as opposed to being involved in border duty and international conflict, right? Now, I know that would compromise Indian state security to some degree, but if we had all that data, uh, people who want to, who, people who are actually concerned to have a more accurate, fact-based narrative on Kashmir would be able to go to this and use it. And if that Indian report had exactly the same columns for China and Pakistan showing unknown, 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 uh, you know, well, I think that might go a long way that people might use this official data on Kashmir instead of picking up data from activist NGOs because the data from activist NGOs are the only data in town. So if you want journalist deaths data, activist NGO. You want data on sedition charges, activist NGO. You know, you want data on status of Kashmir, activist NGOs. That's the only place you can go for the data. Uh, so you get it through their lens. And not only do people get it through the lens? Importantly, reporters get it through their lens because, you know, if I've been commissioned by a newspaper as a journalist to write, you know, let's say there's some conflict between India and Pakistan, some missile goes astray, like, I know it wasn't in Kashmir, but like earlier this year, the missile went astray. Let's say a missile goes astray in Kashmir, Kashmir suddenly becomes a story. Or let's say there's a UN resolution, you know, General Assembly resolution on Kashmir, it suddenly becomes a story. Well, that journalist, what what's that journalist going to do? It's going to, you know, he or she's going to Google status of Kashmir, pick up Wikipedia, pick up, you know, whatever activist reports are out there, and that's going to become the framing for the story. Well, let's have other data easily available. It won't solve the situation. I want to be clear. It will simply make it easier for those who do want to have a fact-based understanding of India not to have to rely on these activist sources. 
Fair enough. Now I'm going to give you another version that I hear often, which is that why should I'm just literally stating yeah. it as it has come out. So why should even India bother about any of this, you know, uh, and it's going to be a long winded answer. So because I have to explain how yeah, uh, yeah. and summarize a lot of I'll get a drink of water. I'm listening. Yeah, go on. <laughs> so the point is that uh, the argument given is that no matter what we do, no matter what we say, the 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 mindset, uh, it's like uh, talking to a brick wall. None of these people are actually going to agree with what we say. Uh, and uh, then they give me uh, the explanation. What they say is it's not just the first order effect of these reports. It's the second and third order effect of these reports that where which basically is not the actual report itself, but the cascading effects that New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Atlantic, uh, Guardian, Independent, and many other papers do. And basically what happens over there is like if you have a Rana Ayub, and to use an example of Rana Ayub over here, because yeah. if you're going to have Call a Rana Ayub... Washington Post. Yeah. Yeah. And if she's going to write and then the reporter is going to say this... The point many times I hear from uh, you know policy circles in India, they're like, We've just given up because no matter what we do, it, it it's yeah. like talking to a brick wall. And no matter how much we try to rebut them, like initially they would try to rebut them. And now sometimes they just say, you know what, let them lie. So what do you say to those arguments? I have two responses. First, it's simply not going to work. Uh, people care. The government cares. Uh, the government can say it doesn't care all it likes. Clearly it cares. <laughs> Or it wouldn't squeal about it when the rankings come out. Clearly, Indians care, or I wouldn't be on your podcast. Uh, so, first of all, people do care, and, and and they should, right? No one wants to see their country portrayed in a negative light, especially if that negative light is not earned, is not accurate. Uh, I think it's testament to the success of Indian democracy that so many Indians are upset about these negative rankings. I, I don't think, you know, I don't think people in Pakistan are particularly upset that Pakistan gets a bad ranking for it. Democracy. I don't think people in Myanmar are particularly upset that their country gets a bad ranking for democracy. Uh, you know, people in Bangladesh maybe should be more upset. Bangladesh is actually ranked well below Pakistan uh, on VDEM, which I find a bit bizarre. Uh, but you know, there you go. Um, so first of all, people are upset. They do care. And telling them not to care, you know, like th that's a useless endeavor. It's like telling people, you know, like don't you know, oh, you're, you're, you're in love. No, no, don't be in love. You, you know, that person's no good for you. It's like, that doesn't matter what you tell the person, the person cares. Um, so the second problem is that the real world impacts are starting to accumulate. So I already gave the example of a, a, an ethical investment fund, for example, or a development loan that is based on minimum meeting minimum governance, governance standards. Um, there is no magical source of information on governance standards. You know, when the World Bank had its governance index that China was gaming, and so the index had to be pulled because it was, you know, being warped by China's corruption. Um, well, where do they get the data for that? You know, a lot of it comes from VDEM, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, these rankings feed into all sorts of indices that then are used to judge a country. Now, they may be used, for example, by a bond rating firm. So if a bond rating firm in, in its sovereign ranking, sovereign debt ranking, if they see that there's a correlation between level of democracy and 
debt repayment and level of risk, well, they'll use that ranking in their model and their regression model for level of risk. And it's in there and India will get a worse sovereign debt ranking, not directly because of the rankings, not because someone at S&P or Moody's or Fitch saw the ranking and said, oh, we've got to downgrade India, but because governance standards are in the regression model. And generally speaking, countries that score better on these rankings generally are better credit risks. I mean, you know, Sweden's a better credit risk than Pakistan. Uh, and because there is a correlation out there in the world between these rankings and credit risk, India will end up with a lower sovereign ranking. Um, investors might be put off investing in India if they see that India, you know, who wants to be accused of supporting a fascist dictatorship? We're, we're now seeing countries, co companies starting to be scared out of China at last. You know, the accusations of genocide in China, organ harvesting, all the terrible things in China. Well, the press on India bizarrely is roughly as bad in Australia or America as the press on China. Now that's because India has been trashed by its own intellectuals while China has been spending a fortune to bribe people to say nice things about China. So, you know, we all know why that's the case, but the reality is that the narrative is roughly similar. And well, if you have to choose between investing in one fascist dictatorship or a communist dictatorship, eh, you know, does it make much difference? So there are these real world implications. Think about foreign affairs. Uh, the Quad, which was you know resurrected uh, uh, you know, a few years ago under the idea of a you know like minded union of democracies that were resisting Chinese aggression. Well, the Quad is you know the U.S., Australia, Japan, and India. India is only in it because India was perceived as a fellow democracy. Um, Will India continue to be perceived as a fellow democracy? Is it has the Quad been downgraded from a military collaboration to more of a civil? So Joe Biden considers it a, a coronavirus and climate change organization. Is that in part because American Democrats and Australian Labor uh, people are a little wary about working with India? You know, that might feed into it. Um, will the U.S. sell weapons to India? You know, so there's a big debate right now over the uh, uh, the naval fighter and will it be a Rafale or will it be a, an F-18 from the U.S.? Well, you know, it may, if India were to buy the F-18, and by the way, as an American, I really hope for greater India-U.S. collaboration as an impartial academic advisor, buy the Rafale because, <laughs> because France is never going to cut you off because domestic French politics become anti-Indian. Could the U.S. ultimately sanction India and cut India off from parts to its carrier-based fighter jet? Yeah, that, that could happen if the domestic political narrative in India becomes sufficiently anti, anti I'm sorry, if the domestic political narrative in the U.S. on India becomes sufficiently anti-Indian to cast India as a unreliable, non-democratic country that is, you know, maybe using American weapons to repress its own population in Kashmir or, you know, against uh, Maoist insurgents in, in the East, right? So these are real concerns for India and the rankings don't directly determine them, but it feeds into all of this, right? It, it's a, it's a root. It is a, at the root of many of these perceptions. Now, if I can warn you about the next thing on the horizon, uh, it's BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions. Uh, Israel already faces an aggressive Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions campaign to the point where you can't even host 
a visiting Israeli scholar at a Western university, or you will have a bunch of pro-Palestinian, in my view, generally anti-Semitic uh, protesters, a combination of Palestinian nationalists who are not necessarily anti-Semitic, they're just pro-Palestinian, and anti-Semitic Westerners who together ally to make life just impossible for any visiting Israeli, whether that's an academic visiting an Israeli, uh, an academic visiting an, uh, a Western institution or an Israeli diplomat visiting, or even in some cases, you know, a business person from Israel visiting, a, you know, making a speech somewhere. Well, Israel has to deal with this. My own union at the University of Sydney has repeatedly voted to have our retirement fund divest from Israel. Again, these aren't binding votes, they're symbolic votes, but you know, the pressure is there. Well, India is now facing this. Um, we've had on campus at the University of Sydney, uh, and I don't know the name of the person, I'm very sorry, but a BJP uh, health spokesperson was on campus to give a talk at the medical school, and the talk was disrupted by anti-India protesters. Again, a mix of mostly Muslim opponents of India, so Pakistani opponents of India, uh, and Western anti-Hinduists um, who together, you know, they will use, and the Western anti-Hinduists and the Western anti-Semites are 80% the same people, right? There's an enormous overlap in these groups. Well, because I see it's the same people. I mean, I, I'm not going to name them. I don't want to have, you know, libel issues. I get it. I get, <laughs> you know, it. I get but, it. But I literally see them at the university. They're the same people using the same tactics, loudspeakers, pots and pans, disrupting meetings, getting students, tricking students into thinking that they're fighting for a noble cause when the students really don't know what's going on. But you hand out a flyer about Indian murders in Kashmir and the students think, oh, that's terrible. I want to do something. You idealistic students who are very easy to manipulate. There's a reason why these organizations are always very campus-based. They're trying to mobilize young idealistic, uninformed students to join their protests. Um, well, this is now routine on Western campuses and it's going to get worse for India, right? So the, what Israel, Israel is still able to succeed, you know, the, the country's a high tech powerhouse, a, you know, a, a you know, globally prominent small country, a great democracy. Yeah, but India, uh, Israel has a constant drag all the time on everything it does. And it's only U.S. support at the U.N. that prevents Security Council resolutions being passed against Israel. You know, France and Britain will um, abstain. It's the U.S. veto that keeps Israel from facing more serious problems. Well, India doesn't even have that U.S. veto to back it up. And I know this is a separate issue, but people have repeatedly asked me here in Australia, Salvatore, how can you say India is so great when it supports Russia? And so, well, first of all, India doesn't support Russia as such. India has not condemned Russia at an official level. And I say, why don't they condemn Russia? Well, you know, India needs that Russian veto at the Security Council because India is not Ameri not Israel. It doesn't have that big brother to stand up for it in the Security Council. India's big brother on the Security Council is Russia because otherwise a combination of Chinese and Muslim interests would combine to condemn, condemn India at every opportunity. Right. So all of this is coming India's way, and the rankings are just part of it. But it's a broader phenomenon that's reflected in the rankings. Yeah, I, I, I hear where you're coming from. Just one passing remark before I start taking the viewer questions is that the real worry for me 
uh, you made a passing comment on uh, the Jewish and the Hindu parallels. The biggest worry for me out of these reports is you have you have shared the big picture image of how it can affect us economically at the level of the nation. What scares me beyond that is also the Hindu phobia that all these things add to the Hindu phobia and the Hindu community. I, I've just spent four and a half months in North America. I've met, I was traveling all over the place. I went yeah. to many talks. I give five or six talks and, you know, young kids, elderly Hindu, these are American and Canadian citizens. They're worried. They're worried about the sudden rise of Hindu phobia. There are now proper studies being done, uh, uh, under, yeah. Two, uh, in Rutgers itself, uh, then you had the Hindu Muslim tension in Leicester, and that led to a lot of Hindu phobic yeah. content generated online. And these are real world issues. So actually, my biggest concern is for the Hindu community outside India itself. They, uh, and they didn't do any of this. And th that scares me a lot. Look, I insist on the word anti-Hinduism, not Hindu phobia. Uh, I'm sorry to be a stickler as an academic for terms. But Hindu phobia on the model is of Islamophobia and uh, transphobia. It is not an accurate term. Uh, One hundred percent agree with you, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, people are not afraid of Hindus. If anything, the problem is that people aren't afraid of <laughs> Hindus, right? So Hindus have have a reputation for being peaceful, nonviolent, non-confrontational. You know, ahisma is a is a found foundational principle of hinduism we all associate ahimsa. mahatma gandhi with ahimsa. hinduism uh, so ahim, ahimsa so there's there's not a lot of hindu phobia out there now there was a lot of so if we think of the model of that term blank phobia there used to be a lot of homophobia real homophobia in western societies where if someone found out that someone was gay well they inch away they thought that that was somehow dirty or you know germy and you you can't be around again and then aids of course really fed into that homophobia so that so that homosexuals in the west became very socially isolated especially in the light of the aids epidemic unfairly so and that we had to spend a lot of time and a lot of effort fighting homophobia to ensure that homosexuals could be accepted in society and i think that fight has now been largely won transphobia for, is a real phenomenon i mean for all of the you know, extreme wokeness around uh, trans issues. Yeah, I mean, many people are profoundly uncomfortable meeting a transsexual person whose physical appearance may in some ways just not seem uh, quite, uh, you know, uh, quite according to their own expectations, right? And so there is transphobia. People do feel uncomfortable. You know, people who are transsexual do face discrimination in the workplace. They, they do face social isolation of people not wanting to make ordinary friendships and have ordinary relationships with people who are transsexual. It's a real phenomenon. Islamophobia is a real phenomenon. Muslims, especially conservative Muslims in the West, uh, especially Muslim women in the West, often dress in very distinctive ways, uh, ways that people are not comfortable with. The fact that Muslim women, conservative Muslim women, for instance, generally won't shake hands in business situations, creates a lot of awkwardness. People aren't sure, what should I do? And then of course, there's the issue of Islamic terrorism, so Islamist terrorism, uh, which does result in some real Islamophobia of people being worried that, you know, if they somehow do something that's perceived as anti-Muslim, 
they could become a victim of crime, a victim of terror, you know, a victim of violence. So there is Islamophobia that unfairly stigmatizes the 99 point whatever percent of Muslims who are peaceful, law-abiding, friendly, helpful people, right? So these phobias are real phobias. Hindu phobia is not a phobia. The people aren't shunning Hindus because they are afraid to be seen near Hindus, or they're not shunning Hindus because they're awkward talking to somebody who is has a you know tika on, uh, you know, there, there's or a bindi, right? There, there's no, um, I, I haven't seen any evidence of that. What I see is a lot of anti-Hinduism on the model of anti-Semitism. Right? So just as with Jews, people are not generally speaking afraid of Jews. People are hostile to Jews, right? Irrationally hostile towards Jews. And the same kind of irrational hostility that Jews have experienced, well, in the West for 2000 years, um, has also been a feature of Western Hindu relations ever since early colonialism, right? So it, this is something that goes back to French and British, especially British colonialism in India, the disparagement of Hindus, the um, labeling of Hindus as you know heathen, or sometimes pagan, uh, the with a very negative connotation attached to that, uh, the preferencing for Abrahamic faith. So in, in colonial India and pre-independence India, the, the preferencing of Christians and Muslims in India over Hindus in India, outright discrimination against Hindus in British colonial India, um, institutions that are institutionally anti-Hindu. So many, many Islamic studies centers in the West although they would never admit it, I think are clearly, if you look at the productions of their research production, are very are very anti-Hindu in their research outputs. So, you know, I know you agree with me, maybe, you're, maybe you're, your listeners don't. So I wanna make this very clear. What I see out in the world that's threatening Hindus in the West is not Hindu phobia, it's anti-Hinduism. And the reason to make that distinction clear is that the solutions are different. You know, the solution to Hindu phobia would be to, you know, just introduce people to Hindus, get, make them more familiar with Hindus, to teach people about the Hindu faith and that, oh, no, it's not, there's nothing strange about it. People have different beliefs in different parts of the world. And it's a, a major faith system on a par with other major world religions. And, you know, th there's nothing to be afraid of. The same way that we solved uh, homophobia by just including by normalizing homosexuality, by bringing gays into ordinary social situations as ordinary people without any implication that there's something strange about being homosexual. Well, that solution won't work for anti-Hinduism right? any more than it works for anti-Semitism because the familiarity, although it might reduce fear, it does not reduce hostility. Right? So bringing Jews into contact with anti-Semites will not make the anti-Semites less anti-Semitic. You know, if anything, it'll exacerbate their anti-Semitism. You know? And in the same way, bringing Hindus into contact with anti-Hinduists does not reduce their anti-Hinduism. So I'm sorry to go on at length about this, but as a sociologist, you know, this is to me, the, the reason it's so important to get these terms right is that they have different implications for social policy. We could easily solve anti-Hinduism. I'm sorry, we could easily solve Hindu phobia by having more community events where people can try Indian food and you know do a little dance and watch a little Bollywood and we we normalize Hinduism and everyone just becomes less Hindophobic. It's a strange thing at first, but then it becomes normalized and everyone accepts it. 
that won't work for anti-Hinduism. And you know, anti-Semitism is still with us despite the last 80 years of systematic government policy to fight anti-Semitism still with us today. Uh, and I'm afraid that anti-Hinduism is going to have the same trajectory. Hmm. I agree with you. I've uh, I use the word Hindu phobia uh, because it's just something that has kind of stuck on. In fact, uh, I, I have never been a supporter of that word. And people who follow this podcast regularly would actually know that. Yeah, Kushal never liked yeah. the word. In fact, initially, I would not even add that word in the titles. But then, you know, this time when I went to North America, like I the diaspora beat that word in me. Basically, yeah, I know you said. Yeah, it, there's a bizarre it. look i've experienced this talking to hindus uh, abroad in australia and especially in america there's a bizarre notion that if only we could be a victim too <laughs> you know like like there's this notion that there's a race of victimhood Speaking my words man yep yeah there, the there's this victimhood sweepstakes and and it's mistaken right it's it's just I mistaken the, the idea that if I you agree. too can be a victim you too can get the benefits um because the genesis of this is not it's simply not coming from the same place as transphobia, as homophobia, as Islamophobia. Uh, it's coming from a very different place. And the victimhood narrative, competitive victimhood, I'm sorry to tell you, is not going to work for Hindus. You know, uh, I, I same way, you, man. I, yeah, I the same you. way it hasn't worked for Christians. So, so Christians yep. have tried the same thing. So Christians in the West, even though the West is Christian in culture and heritage, actual practicing Christians have in most Western countries, certainly in Western Europe and in uh, Australia, ha have come to be seen as, you know, a, a hostile foreign force somehow, right? It's been a bit bizarre, but, uh, you know, Christians have faced social, practicing Christians, believing Christians have faced, uh, you know, opprobrium, uh, you know, ridicule, uh, invective in newspaper columns, you know, in, on TV, not so much in the U.S., but in other Western countries. Um, that's not Christophobia. Uh, you know, that's people who resent religion, who are anti-Christian. Um, and again, same problem, right? You, Christians can't portray themselves as a victim group. And as a result, kind of get the same protected status. It, it just won't work sociologically even if it's appealing, even if it see, may seem to be appealing uh, on its face. So yeah, anti-Hinduism, get used to it and start developing strategies to deal with it the same way that unfortunately Jews bear the burden of uh, fighting anti-Semitism. They shouldn't have to. I'm personally a member of the Holocaust Museum, which is three blocks down from me here in Sydney, Australia. I'm a member because I support their work fighting anti-Semitism, even though I'm not myself Jewish. You know, hopefully you can find people who support your work against anti-Hinduism. But just like the Jewish community everywhere in the West has to constantly be fighting this battle against anti-Semitism, Hindus better, you know, muscle up <laughs> for a long fight. Exactly. All right, Salvatore, let's take a few questions now. So the first one, I'm going to go from the earliest ones to the layer, the to the latest ones. So the first question was, but isn't it VDEM's responsibility to normalize the data across Hong Kong and India, especially when they claim to produce a ranking? So the, I guess this was when you were explaining the Hong yeah, Kong yeah. and India thing. So that's the first question. Um, so actually, VDEM doesn't produce a ranking. VDEM produces a score which in inevitably becomes a 
ranking. But if you look at their own outputs, they produce a score. Now, maybe there is somewhere on their site where they produce rankings, but the fundamental data they actually publish are scores. Do they have a responsibility to normalize those scores? Maybe they have a moral responsibility in some sense, but from a statistical standpoint, there's no obvious mechanism for doing that because to, to normalize the scores, you're suggesting that they have some external validation against which to judge the surveys that are coming in. They don't have such an external validation. If they do, they wouldn't need the surveys. So it's a chicken and egg problem. If they had some means to normalize the scores, they wouldn't need the scores in the first place. Fair enough. All right. The next question is, uh, it starts with a comment because uh, the, the person asking this question is an academic. So they yeah. say, as an academic, uh, uh, I can't submit anything for peer review without sample characteristics outlined in table one. How can VDEM survey have any validity without outlining the biases of the survey sample? Um, all I can say is it, it, it does because it does. <laughs> it's kind of like they say that nothing succeeds like success. Um, you know, look, there, there are VDEM, VDEM produces more extensive methodological documentation than any of the other ratings organizations. Is it sufficient itself to be peer reviewed? Well, I think some VDEM methodology publications have been peer reviewed, uh, but they don't produce as much documentation as you probably would for typical survey research. For example, they don't give any list of you know numbers of respondents by country. That's data I would want if I were a peer reviewer. Uh, but it's not data that they've provided. Now, should their own publications have passed through peer review? I suspect should they should not have. Uh, if I were a reviewer, I would want more information. But I have found, in, in, if you're an academic in the in the social and behavioral, I'm sorry, in the social sciences and humanities, you've probably found as well that peer reviews are based much more on does the reviewer like what you said. <laughs> <laughs> on the actual information provided. Now, it's so now true. if you're, it's so yeah, true. now, now, now that, and that's why my own paper on Indian democracy rankings, I didn't even bother to put through peer review. I, I mean, it was, it, uh, I, there's a story behind that that I can't tell for confidentiality reasons, but it, it, it look, it, there's just no point peer reviewing it or putting it to, giving it to a journal because my colleagues will just say that it's wrong, uh, you know, without saying why it's wrong. Um, it's a real problem in the social sciences and humanities. And we've seen this in the, you know, in the, the, the trolling that's been done of, you know, fake papers taking the most famous one was one that, that took passages from Mein Kampf, Hitler's Mein Kampf, and just changed uh, Jew to white. You're talking about <laughs> and German. Rose, and, and Lindsay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it better than I do. Right. And, and, and I'm proud to say it did not get accepted by the American journal of sociology, which does have standards. <laughs> Uh, but it did get accepted by, you know, culture studies journal. And, you know, th this is just a fact of life for those of us who are in the humanities and social sciences that um, my papers typically, uh, and, and look, what I've published academically has generally been non-controversial compared to what I've done with the Indian democracy rankings. I usually have to send a paper to three or four journals before it gets published uh, because since I'm almost always in every paper I write taking a counter hegemonic narrative, 
let's say, you know, against the grain of the academy, it, it's just impossible to publish. So yeah, I'm not surprised that, you know, they got through peer review where I wouldn't, but you know, they're, they have a message that everyone's receptive to. Um, I mean, if you just look at the titles of the VDEM reports, they're not about India. Remember their reports are about the whole world. All of the titles are year after year, democracy in danger, the final year for democracy, <laughs> you know, fascism triumphant. I mean, I'm making these up, but these are the kinds of titles they have for their annual reports. And, um, that sells in academia. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a problem. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, all right. So, um, is Professor Babunis not concerned about being labeled right wing in academic circles? Recently, Rajdeep Sardesai in his video say that he found Professor Babunis somewhat on the right side based on his research. Yeah. So first, I'm just going to read you because I just looked it up. The last five VDEM reports. Autocratization turns viral. Autocratization <laughs> surges. Resistance grows. Democracy facing global challenges. Democracy for all? Question mark. Democracy at dusk? Question mark. <laughs> right? So, you know, democracy is always ending. Uh, otherwise, they can't get funding. Uh, look, am I concerned? Look, I, I wrote a book on uh, Donald Trump <laughs> called uh, the, the, the New Authoritarianism, Trump, Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts. Now, I'm very proud that that book was named Best on Politics 2018 by the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal reviewer said that he couldn't tell what my politics were. And if you can write a Trump book in 2018 and no one can tell whether you're a pro-Trump or not, that's got to be an accomplishment. I'm very proud of it. But the fact that I was not anti-Trump in the academy made me pro-Trump. And, and to, to the extent that I was once in a Zoom meeting and I made a joke about, you know, well, look, if I put on my hat as an ordinary academic, I feel this way. But if I put on my hat as an administrator, I feel that way. And I went to get my hat. And I was joking. I said, look, I'm going to get my hat and put it on. Someone said, oh, is it a MAGA hat? <laughs> you know, I don't own a MAGA hat. Uh, but it was just, it's just become, you know, so um, such a joke about, um, you know, it, it, if you're just even handed, you're, you're a right winger somehow in today's world. And look, I don't mind it. Look, I write for a conservative magazine in Australia. It's called Quadrant Magazine. I'm not particularly a conservative, but the magazine is. That's very clear. I'm aware of that. But they're willing to publish my column. And I had previously submitted to the Australian Review of Books, which is kind of the equivalent literary magazine on the other side of politics. And they didn't want my column. So I published it in Quadrant. Uh, look, I'm very comfortable with all well-meaning people. As I said in that notorious photo from India, you know, I'm a member of the con market gang, you know, like uh, ready for the con market gang. Uh, I'm a, a you know, a, a, an academic intellectual whose first thing he wants to do when he visits India is go to the famous bookstore. Um, so I'm very comfortable with my place in the world. If people want to label me right wing, I don't mind, you know, uh, take what you will from my work. I, I've never, I think the closest I've come to writing something that was clearly an endorsement of any political candidate was my book 16 for 16 a progressive agenda for a better america and i desperately tried to get bernie sanders to endorse the book um we went all the way to his chief of staff we got copies to his senate staff his vermont staff he just never mentioned it the book would have sold him you know ten thousand more copies if bernie sanders had just said oh i like this book so um Am I a right winger who believes in universal health care, a higher minimum wage, 
uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, you be the judge. Um, I'm just a social scientist and, and I look, and I don't mind being labeled. I think it's funny when I'm labeled. Um, but you know, labels are going to be there. I've had people warn me, Salvatore, don't do this or you're going to get labeled and then it'll be difficult to do your work. And I just say, look, uh, you know, people are going to do what they do. I don't care. The truth matters. Okay, just a couple of questions before we wrap up. So how do we make mm. these? Uh, I have as much these... time as you want. So you wrap up when you want to wrap up. I'll go as long sure. as you'd like to stay on air. Cool, cool. So how do we make sure uh, that these rating agencies and everything associated with that or downstream from that media houses and everything? How do we create a culture of accountability yeah. where they are so wrong? I'd love to see accountability. I, I'm a big advocate of, for this in universities. So I think one of the big problems we have in universities is self-indulgence. That is, we're given tenured jobs where we can't be fired. And instead of using it to pursue the truth, we use it to pursue our own petty personal agendas. Right. And I think that self-indulgence is really a problem of uh, independent institutions. Um, everyone thinks, every, sorry, everyone in them thinks that independent institutions are fantastic. You know, that, that the Supreme Court of India thinks that, you know, the Supreme Court should be self-governing and should not have any oversight. Why? Because everyone loves having no oversight. Um, but that lack of accountability leads to perversions where people just start to favor themselves if they're not accountable to others. It's very difficult to have accountability. I, I don't know how you do it. It's just extremely, it, it's a tough challenge. Uh, we want people to have some autonomy, but we also want to rein them in and have some accountability. Unfortunately, you know, no one, no one in India can hold anyone accountable for India's democracy rankings published in Yotimbura, uh, London and Washington. And that's just an unfortunate fact of life that, you know, you've got to get used to. And as I keep saying, you can't change the narrative. All you can do is offer a credible counter narrative. And that counter narrative will hopefully count for something. Fair enough. The next question is, um, do you think that the current turn that has taken at an idea, uh, you, you made a passing reference to the oppression Olympics. I mean, you didn't use the word yeah. oppression Olympics. I'm using no. it. No, because Olympics is because Olympics is, is copyrighted and we can't use it for our oppression Olympics. <laughs> uh, so, uh, oppression, I'm sorry. so oppression Olympics is a word uh, that was coined by yeah, uh, I know, I'm kidding. Faisal Sayyid Al-Muttar. He's the guy who asked to uh, coin the word. So basically he, he created this concept. So how much do yeah. you think uh, the culture and society, because America tends to have a disproportionate if, uh, effect on the rest of the world, whether yeah. we like it or not, it does. It, the American soft power is real. American hard power is real. So yeah. how much of this change in American culture where certain ideologies, agendas are being pushed, how much of this has an effect on these rankings and ratings and 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 these indices in that sense um look uh com competitive oppression uh, uh you know it doesn't uh i think directly affect these kind of rankings i mean uh, again I, I mentioned in passing bangladesh rates worse than india and worse than pakistan on the rankings um now, Bangladesh is, okay, not a great quality democracy, but it's certainly a better quality democracy than its ranking would indicate. 
uh, it's not below, you know, it, it is not down at number 148 or something where it is. And, you know, Muslims, Muslims winning in the oppression Olympics uh, in the West doesn't make Muslim countries score better on the rankings, right? So I, I, I'm not sure the two are related to each other. Uh, now, as we said before, there's more of an argument that, that they are related to this issue of Hindu phobia versus Hindu anti-Hinduism. Uh, I personally don't think it's a good strategy, the competitive oppression, and I don't think that it really has much effect in this particular area. It has big effects elsewhere, but I don't think it's a big issue here. The, the, the place where it's the biggest issue relating to India is one that uh, Rajiv Malhotra has identified in you know, his new book, In Snakes in the Ganga, uh, of uh, Dalit activists, uh, again, trying to use U.S. mechanisms to identify Dalits as an oppressed group in American law. And that's you know, happening now in California and I think in some other states. And that has the potential to rebound back on India, because right now the, the democracy rankings narrative on India is India is terrible because it's purportedly anti-Muslim. Well, if the narrative becomes India is terrible because it's purportedly anti-Muslim and anti-Dalit, uh, then you have a double problem, you know, to face in India. Um, so I think there'll be indirect routes through which this competitive oppression gets to India, but I don't think it's as simple as, um, you know, a straight line from there to the rankings. Mm -hmm. All right. The next question is Morningstar does regular surveys of people living in all the major 150 countries to see the approval ratings of leaders and Narendra Modi always tops them with 65 to 70 percent. Doesn't this make the editorial teams of these institutes question their sample for their survey or their methodology itself? It should make them question it. And this is my main complaint about the organizations behind the rankings is they're not exercising appropriate editorial oversight. Now, I've highlighted that in my own research by showing the claims that they're just feeding through that from the expert panels that they're feeding through into their reports, claims that are just clearly wrong uh, in, in many cases. Um, and it, as, an edit, as an editor, as editors, they should be able to cite those errors and not allow these inaccuracies and outright fabrications or lies to be transmitted into the rankings. And in the same way, they should be exercising some editorial discretion in under, in when they see the survey that, you know, Narendra Modi is very popular. So the fact that he's popular, I don't think would convince them because there's a lot of intellectual bias against quote unquote majoritarianism. Uh, now, we can get into majoritarianism if someone wants to ask about it, but many academics would think, well, if 65% of Indians like Merger Modi, they must be oppressing the 35% who don't, <laughs> right? And that narrative is a possible, well, that's the, that would be the, the reflexive reaction that you would find. What I find much more convincing is the proportion of Indian Muslims who think Narendra Modi is doing a good job, which is, I don't know the numbers, but it's a majority of Indian Muslims who approve of Narendra Modi. And I've tried to use that in my own, in a foreign policy article, and it was shot down. And this is a couple of years ago. I, I don't remember the details. I can't go into them. But I was pointing out that, you know, well, you know, if a majority of Indian Muslims give Narendra Modi a favorable approval rating, whatever else Narendra Modi may, Modi may be, he can't be some kind of neo-Hitler 
anti-Muslim, <laughs> you know, on a sponsoring a pogrom against India's Muslims because generally people don't like people who oppress them. And, uh, you know, so this, this greater than 50% job approval rating among Indian Muslims is, I think, prima facie evidence that India is not an oppressive state for Indian Muslims as a whole. Now, our, that leaves open the possibility that there are groups of Muslims who are oppressed in India. I don't know that. I can't, you know, all of you may have strong feelings on that. I don't have strong feelings on that because I don't have the evidence. But broadly speaking, I can't make the case that Narendra Modi and the BJP are an, an anti-Muslim force when 19% of India's Muslims voted for Narendra Modi and the BJP, well, voted for the BJP in the last election. Um, and to put that 19% in perspective, 19% of Muslims voted for the BJP and only 49% of Hindus. I, I mean, it's not like a majority, overwhelming majority of Hindus voted for the BJP, slightly less than half voted for BJP candidates in the Lok Sabha elections. And, you know, like the Muslim vote was not anywhere near as high as the Hindu vote for the BJP, but it was a substantial fraction. To put it in context, fewer than something like 8% of African Americans vote Republican. You know, so if we accept America as, I mean, I know it's popular now to call America a fundamentally racist country and the Republicans a fundamentally racist party, but we all know that's not true. I mean, the Republican Party is not a racist political party. So if we if we accept that the Republicans are a respectable mainstream political party in the U.S. with only 8% of the African-American vote, um, well, I kind of have to accept the BJP with 19% of the Indian vote. So there's a lot of evidence, but the evidence is not simply Narendra Modi is popular uh, because we could have Narendra Modi being popular he could be popular for instituting a pogrom against 15% of the population. Now, he, he's not doing that. The more convincing evidence of that is his popularity among Muslims. Got it. So what do you make, uh, do you think, so the question is, I'll expand it to, what is your understanding or, uh, of the relevance of decoloniality in sociology? I guess, do so, does sociology needs to be uh, needs some decolonizing? It does. And, and I'm a big fan of this. And in my prior work, I have done collaborations and a very serious study of non-Western traditions in social science uh, in Latin America. I co-authored a book with a Zapatista scholar. There's my right, your right wing Modi Bhatt, uh co-authored a book on development with a Zapatista intellectual, <laughs> Gustavo Esteva. Uh, so I've done work with Latin American indigenous perspectives. Uh, I've done a lot of work on Chinese indigenous perspectives on social science. And now I've been very actively studying Indian indigenous perspectives on social science. Uh, unfortunately, decolonization of the curriculum and decolonization of the mind in Western universities has not fundamentally been taken to mean a real engagement with organic intellectuals in non-Western societies. It's been taken to mean engagement with Westernized intellectuals in non-Western societies. Uh, and I found this very in a very dismaying way. I mean, I no longer attend the International Sociological Association because I was very dismayed that hearing non-Western voices uh, at the Americans at the International Sociological Association meant hearing from Marxists and Weberians from India, <laughs> you know, or from China, uh, not hearing from say, Sarvakarites <laughs> from India or, or, or you, know, uh, you know, Confucianists from China. You know, it meant 
hearing from people who happen to be Chinese or Indian or African who embraced Western perspectives. I mean, my favorite example of that was being at, at a conference on development and listening to uh, Puerto Rican independence activists talk about, you know, decolonizing our curriculum because, you know, Puerto Rico should be, you know, viewed as independent. And of course, what university did they teach at? Um, you know, University of Maryland and Harvard. <laughs> it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, what kind of Puerto Rican perspective are you offering from major American institutions? Um, you, you know, so like, I'd like to take this very seriously. I wish academia would take much more seriously the you know, organic national intellectuals who are working from national traditions. And, and I've even done some publishing on this. So for example, in international relations and, and international sociology, there's the idea of worlding, what constitutes a world. And we have the term, you know, world society that's developed in secular Western social science. But we might also think, uh, you know, for example, of the, the Cautillian system of the world, you know, coming out of uh, uh, mandala theory, you know, in, in Indian uh, international relations theory, or we might think of the Tian Sha concept. In fact, I wrote an entire book on the Tian Sha concept coming out of Chinese uh, Confucian uh, uh, worlding theory. Uh, we might think of a, the Muslim concept of the Ummah being a different kind of worlding theory of what constitutes a world. And I'd like to take these views and approaches very seriously, and I've written about this academically, uh, but I feel like a very lonely voice in, in those debates. Um, my colleagues very much want to see non-Western faces spouting Western social science instead Fair of seeing enough. actual non-Western social science. Yeah, I pretty much covered the gist of all the questions, but before we wrap up, this question, I, want to, I wanted to leave it as the major serious philosophical question. We see sampling biases, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of... Uh, uh, as I said, the weird uh, syn uh, syndrome, a little bit of uh, lack of transparency, a little bit of lack of accountability. But at the end of the day, an average human being looks at all of this. They look at academia. They look at, uh, I, I keep going back to the book by Tom Nichols, The Death of Expertise. Um, and you need experts. All yeah. of this creates, uh, I don't know how to say this, but COVID did the biggest number on expertise and expert in the history of humanity the mm -hmm. i mean as somewhat for example i'm very openly pro vaccine but the point is the way anthony fauci communicated he should not mm -hmm. be given the right to communicate because he he clearly <laughs> messed it up he should not be allowed to communicate that man messed it up for many of us who actually believed in the scientific method but the point is yeah. that what is the truth when the so called torchbearers of the truth keep making so how do you expect any average indian to take any of these surveys or any of these things seriously if they want to seek the truth where does the truth go in all of this it's a huge so, philosophical issue yeah yeah you know uh kushal you 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 can't handle the truth that's the problem uh look we uh what is the truth so i'm very postmodern, and, and again those who call me right wing may not like you know to hear that um, but I'm very postmodern about this and the idea that we don't, there, there is no, I'm sorry, if there is a single truth, my own po my own variety of postmodernism, the three varieties of postmodernism, you know, one is that there is a single truth, but we just don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, another is that there are multiple truths. And then the third 
stake take is that there is no such thing as the truth, right? So these three positions, postmodern positions on the truth. I'm the more, I guess, conservative postmodernist. I think there is a true answer to things. We just don't know what it is. And experts differ on what that true answer actually is. So, you know, uh, if, if, if there's a, you know, if you imagine a battle situation and there are bullets flying everywhere and, you know, someone is shot and dies, well, somebody actually killed that person. Which one of those thousand people firing bullets killed that person? We'll never know, right? So there is a truth that bullet went from some gun to somebody's chest and killed a man. Um, but we'll never know the truth of that death. Only God knows, right? And the rest of us can never know. And that's the case for so many things in the world. Um, and, and so many things, not trivial things, really important things. Um, you know, so for example, will, um, you, you know, will a tax cut result in an increase or a decrease in incomes for the poor? No one knows. Even if you cut the taxes and you find out what happens, you don't know if those changes in income for the poor were the result of the tax cut or the result of all these other things that happened at the same time the tax cut happened. And someone who's in favor of the tax cut will say, oh, well, incomes went down for the poor, but they would have gone down more <laughs> had it not been for the tax cut. And someone else say, no, 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 you know, the tax cut caused the decline in incomes. We can never know what the truth of these situations is. We have, there is a truth. I'm confident there's a truth out there, but we don't have access to it. Uh, God's not telling us, right? And, you know, in that situation, we rely on experts, but experts have opinions. And the problem is we over-rely on experts. If we take experts too seriously, and experts are certainly prone to taking themselves too seriously, right? Experts are wildly overconfident in their own ability to ascertain the truth. If I've learned anything from my study of statistics last 20 years, it's, you know, I don't know. I have guesses as to things. I have things I'm pretty sure about. Uh, but certainly when it comes to social policy, all bets are off, right? I could be, I'll give you my expert advice. I'll give you the reasons for it. But in a democracy, you, the people have to decide what the truth is, what the right answer is. And all of you have to decide for yourself in your own lives, you know, which truth you want to follow. And, and if that makes social policy and social science sound a lot like religion, where, you know, you have to decide which approach to God is the right approach to God. Well, it's because it is. I mean, we, we're all dealing with unknowables, you know, not just things we don't know, but things that are fundamentally unknowable. And that includes the experts. We're all dealing with unknowables. Economists famously cannot predict the economy. Despite a hundred years of business cycle research, economists do no better than a coin flip in predicting the economy. Surveys of economists. So we still use them. They'll always report, oh, survey of economists says the consensus prediction is that this will happen. No better than a coin flip. Stock pickers do no better than the market average. So always, everyone's, all, every professional says, invest in an index fund. Because people who devote their lives to picking stocks do no better than average. Well, you might as well not pay them, <laughs> right? Save the money on getting the advice or call a soothsayer, <laughs> right? Or, or consult your astrology table. You'll do just as well as picking the stock market as a professional stock picker. So this is just something we have to live with is the profound uncertainty of life. And, and this is part of what makes me, I know it wasn't in the question, is what makes me such a big fan of democracy in that if we can't really know 
what the truth is, well, let's take a vote. <laughs> and if we won't get the right answer, at least we'll make more people happy, right? At least we'll all have a say in, in what the truth should be, even if we can't ever know what it is. It's interesting because uh, as a philosophy guy, then that's my core area. That's my formal education and training in. So actually, I think you're less postmodern and more Hindu in that sense because you're very Jain. <laughs> Maybe I am. Because, yeah, I, I don't think so. Your position Swami, is postmodern because... Swami Vivekananda back there... <laughs> Is, is is with me on this one. <laughs> All right, awesome. So, uh, it, so before we wrap things up, uh, Salvatore, any any last words that uh, you'd want to say to the viewers? Uh, look, believe in yourself, uh, right? We we you know we we all have to form our own views. Don't take my word for it. Don't take Kushal's word for it. You know, make your own mind up, make your own decisions, and uh, you know, live by live li live by your own intellect rely on your own intellect your own instincts and even if you're no more right than i am at least statistically speaking you're no more likely to be wrong than i am <laughs> you have as good a chance as any of us of getting things right Un answered like a true sociologist salvatore it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and uh, here's to here's to many more such uh, conversations that we'll have in the coming years and uh, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and I wish you nothing but success and happiness. Thank you very much. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up once again in the description of the podcast. It doesn't matter if you're watching this in uh, on YouTube or you're listening to it on any of your cherished audio platforms. You will see Salvatore's Twitter handle in the description and his newsletter. So I would recommend you can subscribe to his newsletter and follow him on social media and go and buy his books too. As far as I'm concerned. No, you know no, no. Don't. My, my, my newsletter comes out irregularly. <laughs> my YouTube <laughs> channel is whatever I feel like doing. Don't, follow me on Twitter. That's great. I'd love to have you in touch. But mostly, uh, you know, thanks for all. Look, I really appreciate all the the wonderful attention I've received, but um, you know, don't look for me. You know, subscribe to Kushal. That's good enough. And by the way, I am not only a subscriber, but a uh, what does YouTube call it? A, a supporter, a subscriber. You know, I I Remember. pay for the podcast, and I hope others will do so as well. Hey, man, thank you very much. I know you remember. I did not want to talk about it. <laughs> now, now, that you, now that you've, now that you've thought, uh, spoken about it, it's a, I, I really appreciate it. But once again, guys, I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.